It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Andy Miller, The Economist's culture editor. And this week we're asking, how can America fix its problem with gun violence? Between 2012 and 2016, more than 170,000 people were killed by guns across the United States. In that time, the House of Representatives has not voted on a single new gun control measure. On February the 14th, 17 students and teachers were shot dead at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. Last Saturday, survivors of the massacre led hundreds of thousands in Washington, D.C. to protest against America's lax gun laws and implore Congress and President Trump to fix them. Since the time that I came out here, it has been six minutes and 20 seconds. The shooter has ceased shooting and will soon abandon his rifle, blend in with the students as they escape and walk free for an hour before arrest. Fight for your lives before it's someone else's job. That was 18-year-old Emma Gonzalez, a survivor of the Florida shooting, speaking to the crowds in Washington. Hundreds of marches followed around the world. Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, spoke to some of Emma's high school colleagues at the GEMS Global Education Conference in Dubai. My name's Lewis Mizzen and I'm a 17-year-old senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, I was originally born in Coventry, England, and uh, I moved to America a few years ago. Susanna Barna, 17, from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And Kevin Trejos, 18, from Stoneman Douglas High School. And the reason that you're here at the conference is obviously the aftermath the absolutely traumatic events and the shootings at the school. You've become part of a movement to change things. What first brought you together as campaigners to sort of agree a a way to go forward? We all have different, especially at the school, we all have different ideas of how we're going to get to make sure every kid's safe, but we're all in agreement that something needs to change. And so that's kind of brought us together as a community because we were a very tight-knit community beforehand. And after this, it's kind of just, you know, exemplified that. And so we all want to move forward on the same page and get something to change. It must, you know, have been extraordinarily difficult times for you. I mean, just talk us through your response on the day and thereafter. Kevin, I think you, you have spoken about the events itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, initially after the shooting, we, we obviously took some time to grieve and and to be with our with each other but uh after a couple of days we realize you know we're we have the opportunity to use our our newfound voice to create change and so a, a group of kids got together and they said well hey guys look we can make this a big thing we have the media dying for for something to to come out of it i guess and uh and we we started mobilizing with the Never Again hashtag, and uh, eventually the week after we launched the March for Our Lives, and 
There have been student groups all across the school that have been trying to raise awareness in their own ways and and trying to really cause change in, in our laws in the United States. And forgive me for, for raising something which you must have talked about before, but I mean, you must all have, have known or lost friends in this incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we definitely we did lose friends. We lost uh, siblings of, of other friends, but uh, out of respect to them, I'm, I'm not going to mention any names. But um, yeah, it's definitely been devastating because these are people we've been laughing with, making jokes with for years, and and to have their life end so early is is it's awful. Never again is the the hashtag. Who'd like to speak for the group and say who'd like to lay out what the concrete demands are? Well, yeah, we asked what the end goal is, and obviously there's multiple legislation to get to the goal. But the end goal in the United States is to make sure that kids can go to school and get home safe at the end of the day to their parents. That's the end goal. Obviously, there are a number of ways that different people think we can get there. But, you know, our belief is that we need to raise the age limit to owning assault rifles to 21 years old. We need to ban accessories that make guns more deadly. We need to limit the size of magazines. We need much better background checks and much better mental health reform. That's not an, even an infringement on the Second Amendment. Having background checks should be you know, logical, it should make sense to everyone. The Second Amendment being the right to bear arms. The, being the rights, yeah, the Second Amendment is the right to bear arms. It even says in the Second Amendment a well-regulated militia. And so it even leaves room in the amendment's wording to regulate it. And so, you know, we don't want to take everyone's guns away. That's not what we're calling for, but we're calling for sensible gun reform that will allow us to go to school safely and to allow our you know, kids to go to school safely because this shouldn't have happened to us, it shouldn't have happened at Columbine all the way through to here and it shouldn't happen again in the future. One of the, the arguments put forward by President Trump was if teachers were armed, you know, at least you'd be evening up the, the scales when disaster happens. You've all, at least two of you in the group, looking, sort of shaking your head. Arming teachers is a really bad idea for many, many reasons that I, I couldn't even list them all if you want me to, but just a couple are, I mean... One, in the case of um, a shooting, you don't know who the bad guy is when actual law enforcement would step into the building. They don't know who, who the shooter is. They could suspect multiple, and then they could confuse like a teacher who's armed with, some, with the actual shooter, and they're just trying to protect their kids. And there's just a lot of logistics that wouldn't work out if this actually did happen. And in general... There's just the fear of it misfiring, and you know that there are mistakes, and guns do misfire, and it happens. And you can't take that risk in a school. You just can't. You've been very vocal about this um, here in Dubai and elsewhere. Do you think you're winning that argument? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, initially we, we were, of course, trying to rally support in our state of Florida, then nationwide, and now at this global conference, the amount of support we've had is, is insane. And I think we're going to have a lot of support moving forward, both people using their their voice and their power and also through financial donations uh, to our causes that, that in the end will benefit gun control. Uh, a question, you're at a great point in your life. You're all seniors, right? And you've yeah. got uh, college or whatever your next step is. You know, in a moment when you've chosen to act very bravely with great principle, but this is also your youth. And how do you keep the balance between this campaign and the rest of your lives? And is that something that you're thinking about? Well, you know, one of the things 
I find quite funny is obviously I've never had to I, I'm not very good with scheduling at all I never really plan schedules and now so you know alright you have an interview at 2 o'clock and then that should go until about 2.30 that's a 15 minute drive to here because you have to have a lunch conference with this person then you're meeting an NRA member you know then you, then from 6 o'clock you're free because you know you can go on a date and then you have to be by, by 8 o'clock the date has to be over so you can come back and do another interview and so it's been it's been really intense but one of the things that's been really good is we've like stayed together as friends and at a time like this we really need our friends and I think for people who don't have that support system and are doing it it must be much harder for them because when you're just sitting around hanging out with friends it's, it's, it brings you back to a sense of normality and you kind of continue to enjoy your high school life even with all the activism that we're continuing to do. You mentioned the NRA, I mean you have engaged very directly with and it's a very fierce opponent to have and very skilled at uh, not giving ground on exactly the kind of issues that you would like to give ground on. I mean what's your approach to dealing with NRA? What we've noticed is that the more the NRA spokespeople and, and people in charge talk the more people end up going against them because quite frankly uh, I think too much attention is given to the NRA and and uh, when, when we actually hear them see what they have to say, hear what they have to say, uh, we, we see a, a different reality from the glorified organization they are in a sense. So what we've been trying to do is make them you know, talk as much as possible and then the people have been reacting they say well I, I'm not in support of this organization, what I thought they stood for was not not what they actually do. And and one of the things that was noticeable was on the one month anniversary of when it happened, you know, every, obviously everyone, you know, rallied, they did walkouts, and the NRA posted a picture of a gun saying how much they loved guns. And it, even if, because I've met a couple of NRA members. How did that feel? It's, it's insulting. Um, but, I, you know, I've met a couple of NRA members, and it's been really... I, I can see they're passionate about the issue and they want to make change. Obviously, they disagree with how we want to make change. One of the things that they fail to do is they've kind of failed to show that they do care about the issue because they're this faceless organization. And maybe, I don't know, maybe more people would feel less like they're the enemy if they were more, you know, caring and more sensitive to the issue, but they're not. They're, it's like they fail to realize that we're children and we're going through this, and that's a huge failing on their part, and I suppose it's hopefully that's where they fail as an organization. Susanna, when do you think you will know whether you have prevailed or not? Is this a campaign that you can say, you know, it's better to set a timeline because otherwise it will turn back into the old debate. We're looking in our show at the new debate about controlling guns. You know, what is a realistic horizon for you guys? Um, honestly, we don't have any specific timeline because we do have to take the small victories as, as we go. I mean, it's a long-term battle and nothing's going to change overnight. And it takes bill after bill to actually get every change that we're calling for. I think what we're really hoping is, at least for midterm elections, we're hoping to see people who don't support our gun control and gun safety efforts, that some of them do get voted out. But in terms of a timeline, I can't give you that. So if there's one message you would want, let's say for your generation to take away, what would it be? I think the one thing is that more happened in a month in terms of Florida legislature than happened in 20 years in regards to gun reform and that was because of students. So for any student listening, you know, age shouldn't be a factor in this because if there's one thing I've noticed, it's the adults that have continued to fail. It's the adult who fail in debate. It's adults who fail in discussion. It's adults that are failing in respect and it's we're stepping up and replacing them in a lot of that aspects. And so I'm very optimistic for the future. And I think everyone else should be too. Thank you very much, all three of you. Thanks for making time. Right, thank you. Thank you. Up till now, most successful gun control initiatives have occurred at state level. After the Florida shooting, 
President Trump initially expressed strong support for reform. It's time. We've got to stop this nonsense. It's time. We're going to come up with some ideas. Hopefully, we can put those ideas in a very bipartisan bill. It would be so beautiful to have one bill that everybody could support. But activists' hopes were disappointed when the White House proposed arming teachers. This debate is deeply divisive. Doug Jones is senator for Alabama. His election last December was momentous. The last time a Democrat held that seat was 25 years ago. Last week, he made his first speech in the Senate. He used the opportunity to call for a comprehensive gun reform bill. It's time, Mr. President, that we have a serious, pragmatic, and practical discussion, not a debate or negotiation, but a dialogue on the steps that we can take to reduce the harm caused by gun violence in this country. He joins us on the line from Birmingham, Alabama. Senator Jones, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate your having me today. Senator, gun control was not a feature of your election campaign, was it? Why was that? Well, because at the time we were focused on what we called mostly kitchen table issues, and that is jobs, the economy. Health care was a driving force in the election last year. Uh, I think things changed somewhat uh, with the Parkland, Florida shooting, uh, and it has been much more front and center today. You used your maiden speech in the Senate to talk about the issue of gun control, which I guess until fairly recently would have been an unlikely topic for a a senator from the South to to raise. Well, you're right, although I I will tell you that from my perspective, I I kind of reject the term gun control. You never heard me say that. Uh, And I don't use that term. What I talked about was trying to stem the tide of gun violence. And I think there's a big difference. I think it's a matter of of the messaging as much as the messenger to try to talk about how we can save lives and get uh, measures in place that will help uh, not only in a school setting, but also with the suicide epidemic that we have in this country, the accidental shootings that we have in this country. It's a much more comprehensive look than just simply uh, a mass shooting that has occurred all too often in this country. And do you think that's been part of the problem in the past? Because as we all know, similar atrocities in America have not yielded changes in gun culture and gun laws. Uh, do Do you think that's because, as you describe, the message hasn't been calibrated correctly? I think that is certainly part of it. As I said in in my speech, I think it is such an emotional issue and people tend to forget sometimes that, you know, in places like the South and other areas of the country, this is really a cultural issue. It's not just simply a matter of uh, conservative versus liberal or moderate and progressive. Uh, It's really a cultural issue. And I think uh, the narrative has been changed, I think, to some extent with the the kids' voices from Parkland that have risen up and have been joined by millions of kids throughout the country. And and what they're talking about is trying to protect Americans and trying to save lives. Yes, you know, restrictions on guns uh, is somewhat part of that, but it goes far deeper. And I think if we can change the narrative and talk about safety of all Americans, then I think we can have a more rational discussion. And at the end of the day, that's what I've called for, to try to quit, have people, you know, retreat to their corners and take sides immediately. Let's just sit down and have a dialogue about how we can save lives. You mentioned that the cultural context of um, gun ownership in in the South and 
in other parts of the country. Do you think for that reason that change is most likely to be led at a state level rather than by the federal government? Well, I think that there is a, there's a good chance that that can happen, although I like to believe that the federal government can at least do some things to lead the way. You know, traditionally, uh, the federal government has often uh, taken the lead in trying to uh, establish uh, um, movements and things that will help all Americans. So I think it's important that the Congress of the United States and the president uh, make statements that let the American public and let the state legislatures know where we stand. And the stand that we need to be taking is one of reason, not extreme on either side of this issue, but one of reason and common sense, uh, backed up with some evidence that could help save lives. I think if we can do that in Washington, D.C., then every state can can look at their own uh, needs, what they they believe to be the important steps that their state uh, can take, if any. I would hope that every state takes some, but that should be left uh, up to the states. But uh, again, I think the federal government, since we regulate uh, firearms and firearm sales as much as we do, should at least uh, take the lead and have our voices heard. When you look at the array of practical measures that are under discussion, such as changes to the background check regime and waiting periods and so on. Where do you see the, the, the sort of best chances for progress? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I, th- I think that there is some progress that we can make with regard to background checks. And let me say this too, you know, the, the uh, day or so after my speech, the Senate and the House actually passed a, a budget bill that included some steps forward. It, it will strengthen our background check system. It also clarified language to allow the Center for Disease Control and to actually do some studies about how to stem the, stem the tide of, of gun violence. Those were important steps and steps that have been rejected and not taken in the past. So I think we're moving in the right direction. But I think universal background checks with some exceptions uh, is a very real possibility. I don't believe that there is uh, the American public as a whole uh, is that opposed to that idea. I think there's some things that we can do that will kind of broaden the term for domestic violence uh, matters so that we can keep the keep guns out of the hands of those that would commit domestic violence, assaults, and, and murders. Those are two that I think are, are, are very, very uh, possible. Uh, once you get past that, when you get into waiting periods and raising age limits, I think it gets a little bit tougher. Uh, but you you got to start. I think you, you you need to take a few steps before you try to run. And we may not ever get to a run. We may just need to see where we can go on the steps that we can take and let and let them take effect. And, and as these studies will come up as part of this uh, of what we did the other day. It's interesting that you, you talked about the entire um, kind of horizon of, of gun violence in America. And a lot of the focus after tragedies uh, like the one that we saw in Florida is on assault rifles, which are, have been in recent cases the, the weapons uh, used by the perpetrators of several massacres. But actually, m- most gun deaths in America are caused by handguns, not by um, assault rifles. It's much tougher for politicians to get into discussion about restricting those much more commonly held weapons than it is to talk about assault rifles. Yeah, you know, Andy, one of the problems I think we have in this country and around the world is a definitional problem. You know, every firearm can be an assault weapon depending on whose hands it's in. 
And people get confused between semi-automatic weapons and automatic weapons, and they believe that most of these uh, mass shootings are done with automatic weapons when they're not. Those have been banned in this country for a long, long time. I'd like to see a much broader look at stemming gun violence and gun deaths. You know, the statistics are that states that have implemented some uh, waiting periods on uh, handguns show some decrease in suicides. I think that would probably be true, although I don't have it at the tip of my uh, fingers right now on, on domestic violence disputes. I think we have to look at a much broader issue. Certainly, the mass shootings are part of that, um, and you want to protect people as best you can, whether it's in a school, whether it's in a theater, whether it's in a church. But the fact is that we have, uh, you know, in 2016, over 38,000 deaths by firearms, and that is far too many. Uh, and I think we can prevent a lot of those. I think we can prevent a significant number of those with just some very common sense proposals that not only um, try to stem that tide, but also recognize the importance of what we have, the Second Amendment, and people's rights to enjoy and to uh, possess firearms. Talking about practical measures, what do you make of the idea floated by the White House and others to uh, arm more teachers in American schools? I think it's a dumb idea. I've said that over and over. I I don't think we need more guns in schools. We do uh, have uh, the ability to have some resource officers there. I think there are other mechanisms and ways to kind of make our schools what they call the the hard targets or to, to make sure that our children are safe without putting guns in the hands of teachers. I think the more guns that you have in any one location, the more likelihood you will have that there will be accidents uh, and that innocent people will die. Because, of course, as you know, in the context of schools and elsewhere, the, the NRA's argument is that the, the best or only answer to a bad guy with a gun is a, is a good guy with a gun. But I suppose one problem with that idea is that it, it's hard to tell who's the good guy and who's a bad guy. And sometimes people start out as good guys and turn into bad guys, and you only find that out when it's too late. That's exactly right. And also, some, you know, even good guys with guns who have been trained have accidents and guns discharge when they shouldn't and they get in the wrong hands of innocent uh, children sometimes. I, I just think that you know, the American public does not want to go back to the days of the Wild West, back when everybody was walking around with a gun on their, on their hip pocket. You know, if you look at my speech, what I try to do is to tell people to please get away from those extreme arguments. You know, whether it's the NRA or another gun lobby or whether it's it's people on the, the liberal left side uh, in America who want to ban all weapons. Let's let's, you know, take away the far left and the far right and try to find those areas that we can talk about where we have in common. Let's find out the things that we can agree on and let's move forward with them. Because I, I just think that there's a lot there that if you strip away the rhetoric that we can get to. And you yourself, as I understand it, are a gun owner. Is it your experience in, in Alabama that your constituents are amenable to the kinds of practical fixes, incremental practical fixes that you're talking about? Well, I, you know, I believe so. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to say because of all the rhetoric. I mean, this has gotten to be such a divisive issue right now. People have to put the rhetoric aside and put, the, you know, the, uh, some indoctrination that they've got on both sides of the issue uh, aside. And let's look at practicalities. The fact of the matter is, since 1968, uh, gun owners in this country have lived with a number of, of things. You, you, you know, if you're a convicted felon, you can't p- uh, possess a weapon. Domestic violence, you can't possess a weapon. When you go to a, a firearms dealer to buy a, a firearm, 
You go through a background check. You know, those are things that have become commonplace that people understand and they, they, they go forward with without any real complaints about. What we're talking about is not much more than that, but it would be significant in the overall uh, scheme of, of firearms and firearm violence. You talk about the, the history of guns in America over the last 50 years. I mean, in that time, an important change has happened, which is that gun ownership in America used to be predominantly for, for recreation, for hunting and other sporting pursuits. And in recent decades, there's been a, a switch, hasn't there, that uh, it's become a lot more to do with self-defense. And partly because of that reason, it's become a lot harder to change people's minds because they believe that they're taking measures that are in the vital interest of themselves and their families. Well, I think that that's true for a lot of people. Certainly that is one aspect of it. The other aspect, though, that I think people often overlook is that people have, uh, you know, there are more gun ranges, people learning to shoot, people enjoying to shoot. I, You know, I, I, my son and I, my youngest son and I, We'll just load up some of our uh, long guns as well as pistols on occasion, and we'll go to a range and we'll spend two hours or so shooting at targets, just shooting. It's a it's a fun hobby to have. Those are law-abiding citizens that just enjoy being able to get out in the woods to shoot, go to a range to shoot, uh, shoot skeet. So I think it's the combination of both recreation and hunting, but also just recreational shooting, uh, as well as those uh, that that feel that they need some matter of self-defense, usually at their ho- in their home, some that carry, that have concealed carry permits, but it's usually in their home in defense of their property. You talk about the divisive nature of the rhetoric on both sides. When you look at the protests that happened at the weekend um, across America, mostly by young people and students about gun violence, do you think that's helping or harming the prospects for reform? Because they're very, very passionate occasions, which at the same time draw equally passionate responses from the other side. Well, that that is true. And that's one of the downsides, obviously, when you have this this discussion, each side will evoke responses from the other. But look, I think that what these kids are doing is remarkable. I think over the history of this country and in other countries in the world, it's been young people who have led the social movements, whether it's the civil rights movement in the United States or, or other movements around the world for freedom. And I, so I, they are very passionate and they don't need to lose that passion at all. And I think that once we see that the passion that these kids, this younger generation who sooner or later is going to be running this country, they're going to be leading this country. Um, I think that people will start to take a look. I don't think any of these kids, uh, and I may be wrong, there may be some, uh, obviously, but I don't think any of these kids that are out there now would reject any steps that are being taken. They may passionately say that we don't they don't think it's it's enough but I don't think they're going to reject it I don't think that they will take of it's got to be all or nothing that would be a huge mistake on their part and that's what I'm hoping that people will look to see that that we can hear on both sides and we can find those things that we have the common ground on and and move forward with those and they can still argue and they can still passionately argue for other things as knowing that the other side is going to oppose them but I I'm very proud of these kids for stepping up. Senator Jones, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Andy. Anytime. Thank you very much for having me. We'd like to hear from you too. What do you think can be done to reduce gun violence in America? We're on email at radio at or on Twitter at 
Economist Radio. And if you like this programme, give us a review on your podcast app. I'm Andy Miller. In London, this is The Economist. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.